I've just had a completely fascinating conversation with the one and only Vanita Party, the phenomenal female founder and CEO of Blink Brow Bar and the woman responsible for the brow revolution. For anyone who has seen me, you'll know that I like a good brow. And what I loved was that we tapped into this deep rooted power that comes from really going into your cultural heritage. As you know, I have a deep, profound respect and appreciation for anyone who dares to dream, who dares to imagine the impossible and just go for it. And I could sense this passion and purpose pumping through Vanita's veins for nearly two decades. And it's just a reminder that our backgrounds and our tradition and our history and our DNA can be really powerful tools to change the present. I think you're going to love this one and potentially look at your brows like you've never looked at them before. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. Hi, I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. I founded my first business, Not on the High Street, at 28 with a newborn strapped to my chest. Nearly 20 years on, he's all grown up and I'm running my second business, Holly & Co. I've learned so much about taking risks, running a business and some extraordinary life lessons along the way. And I know others have too. Yet despite the wealth of experience we have between us, lessons like this are often left unheard and it can feel like we're travelling our paths alone. So I've reached out to founders and those who simply inspire me to share their hard-earned wisdom with you. My hope is that collectively, these remarkable realisations will help you on your own journey. I like to think of it as inspiration for life. If you enjoyed this episode, might I ask you to share it with a friend and to like, subscribe and review it so that together we can ignite people's passion across the UK. Now, let's begin this week's Conversation of Inspiration. Hi, Vanita. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, actually, and it, we now have this moment. I've got my mince pie. I don't know if you've got a cup of tea or something. Yeah, I have my tea. I've got my peppermint tea. Fantastic. No time for lunch today, so this, this is going to keep me going. Well, I'm a big fan because you're the founder of Blink Brow Bar and the original walk-in brow bar pioneer. And you're a woman who has brought the ancient Indian technique of threading to the 21st century. I'm a big eyebrow girl. Actually, before, you know, the eyebrow thing, which we'll talk about, sort of kicked off. Yeah. Have you always, I know we'll talk about your childhood, but has the brow always been an important part of your life? Yeah, I think it has. I didn't realise it had until I set up my business. I never intended to have a business in brows. But, you know, looking back, it was a defining moment for me when I had my brows done. And, you know, I had them threaded when I was in India. I was age 13. And it really was a coming of age. I looked so different. I went from being a child to a teenager who had cheekbones. And it was... It was so exciting. And it, I remember thinking that was the one thing I would continue to do for the rest of my life. And I wasn't really into beauty, but, you know, Indian women, we have a lot of hair and we have a lot of brows. So it really did change my face. And so I just came back to London and I did it religiously and I have done it religiously every two weeks. When you say cheekbones, what do you mean? Your eyebrows affect your cheekbones, do they? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like hauling up your whole face because, you know, you get a little mini facelift because you when you shape your brows and you give them definition, you lift them and that naturally lifts your cheekbones. And so it's like brushing the hair back off your forehead or, you know, it mm. just suddenly it's just hauling everything up. I remember an influencer once described it to me as putting on a really good bra it just pulls everything up and into shape. And I just thought that was brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. I love that. Well, I'm yeah. going to start right at the beginning, you growing up, because you were born in London, the middle child of three sisters, but you have an Indian heritage. Your parents were first generation immigrants. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and what that was like? 
Yeah, well, yes, I've got two sisters, the three of us were all very close. And, you know, we grew up in Britain at, you know, probably quite a difficult time because we always felt very conscious that we were Indian. But at the same time, we were born here. So we did feel very British. And, you know, once we closed the doors at home, we became very Indian. There was always Indian food cooking and we'd be listening to Indian music. And but of course, when we went out into the world, we we had to be English. So we kind of straddled the two cultures at a time I think Britain was just, you know, it, you know, there was still quite a sort of racist feel to London. But, you know, my father came over in the 50s. He decided that he wanted to be here. It was a land of opportunity. He didn't have a clue what he was going to do. He set up numerous businesses. And so our house was always filled with boxes and clothes. He was in fashion by the time we were a bit older. And so we kind of got used to the chaos and it was fun. And, you know, my father, we just never knew what we were doing. The excitement in his life was, you know, taking us all to Harrods and pottering around and coming home with some nice scones. And so he loved being in London. He loved the bars, the opportunity. He loved being in the fashion world. He thought it was very glamorous. So, yeah, it was just all kind of by the seat of his pants, really. And I think that's how we all grew up. So at school, did that rub off on you? Did you think, did you like that world of business? Did you see it through him and then almost, you know, looked for those subjects at school? Well, I didn't think that I did. And it's interesting when you look back on your life, you realise that so much inspiration came from my father. But no, I didn't realise it was rubbing off on me. But, you know, it was interesting because people did often ask, you know, what do you want to do? Um, And it kind of seemed natural to me to want to run a business, it was like, well, you know, I'll do what my father does. It doesn't work for anyone. He just comes up with ideas and he sells things. And, you know, in those days, they weren't called entrepreneurs. No. My father described himself as a businessman. You know, he's a businessman. And he did whatever was needed to earn a, earn a buck and he, he, he did well. But so, no, it definitely wasn't a conscious thing at all. What did you excel in at school and what didn't you like? <laughs> well, I, uh, I was terrible at maths. Terrible, terrible at maths. Uh, Anything that required sort of logical thinking, you know, I just wasn't interested. I would glaze over, I would look out the window or I would nudge the, you know, my friend next to me and, uh, and start chatting to her about something and get told off and sent to the back of the class. I loved English. I loved history. They're the two subjects. You know, I like telling stories and using Mm. my imagination So, yeah, I love that. But I wasn't overly interested in school. I was much more interested in who, you know, my friends, chatting to them. And I loved it. And did you go on to further education? I did. So I went to Birmingham University and I did history with politics. And, you know, again, I didn't, you know, it wasn't because I was desperately passionate about learning those subjects. I just wanted to go to university because I thought it'd be fun. And, you know, got my A-levels and I thought I'd go off and my father didn't really mind. He was, he was like, you know, in fact, he just wanted us to get married uh, at the age of 20. And he's like, right, you're done now. Go and get married. And we just said, no, thanks. That's going to be none of that. So I thought in a way it was an escape. I just thought, okay, if I go to university for three years, then, you know, I can go and do my thing without that, that pressure. So I did, but yeah, I didn't really focus. I didn't really concentrate. I, of course, I wish I had. Now I look back, I think, God, what a waste. Well, I mean, whatever happened, you are where you are now. And I want to sort of begin that story. Your mum was a big advocate of home beauty remedies. And I would, I wanted to ask you, what were your first memories of beauty? Well, it's funny, as I mentioned, Indian girls have a lot of hair. And my first memories are of having wild hair, sort of frizzy, curly, and too much of it. And my mother would spend time oiling our hair. It was really important that we kept our hair nourished and soft. And But also it was a bit of a ritual. We used to love sitting on her lap and she would, you know, give us a little head massage. And she had three daughters to get through. So I remember that vividly. And she used very sort of basic beauty products like, um, you know, her oil of Yule uh, was a staple uh, in the bathroom cabinet. And... You know, she'd indulge in a little bit of eye makeup, mascara and a kajal eyeliner. So the kajal eyeliner, was a, it's something that Indian women use a lot. It's a basic, it's to just make their eyes look bigger and they start using it at a young age. So I started using one when I was 13 and I remember I used way too much and my father just looked at me and said, I think you've put 
too much eye makeup on. I just looked at him and said, oh, you know, what do you know? And But yeah, when I look back, I think, oh, I look terrible. <laughs> didn't we all, though? Didn't I know, we all? You know. I had a stage where I permed my fringe. I mean, can we just not even... It's, it's a bad thing and it's good that we didn't have iPhones potentially at that point in time taking lasting memories of all these mishaps. Oh, God, absolutely. And I look at my daughters now they're already laughing at their TikToks from a year ago going oh my god you know you let me have that dreadful hairstyle and so on so I'm really pleased that we didn't document it but beauty was you know it was all natural yes am I right in thinking that your mum made your the first wax out of sugar and honey yes and would she do your waxing for you yeah, so, you know, I think in terms of all the beauty was very natural, very homemade. We had desperately hairy legs and, you know, my mother said, you're not shaving them. That's that's what the English girls at school do. You are not doing that. So she would make the wax at home, sugar and lemon. Oh, my goodness. So we would sit and stir it for an hour to get the perfect consistency because if it went over slightly, it would become, it would start sort of clogging and not work. So it had to be absolutely perfect. We all learned how to do it. We would all wax each other's legs on the dining room table squealing laughter pain and yeah that's 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 what we had to do and yeah and you know we'd make face packs in the kitchen my mother would mix yogurt and turmeric and lemon and she would say this is full of you know vitamins and antioxidants and we would slap it on our face so it all felt a bit basic but it was fun and there were four girls in the kitchen and um there were things we weren't allowed to do. One of them was use a pair of tweezers and the other was um, shave. I mean, it does sound really nice. I mean, a bit painful, I would say, and messy, <laughs> but it does sound like a bonding moment dealing with hair. After your gap year, after university, you worked for Trail Finders. There's a blast from the past. I remember so many people working for Trail Finders just after uni. You started then working for British Airways marketing departments in the mid-90s. What was that time like working for someone like BA? Because that was really in its heyday, wasn't it? Oh, it was so much fun. And I would say it was the best years of my career life. And I sort of ended up there by accident. You know, I had gone travelling. I went to work for trail finders because I couldn't find a job. It was the Gulf War. And while I was there, one of the girls that worked with me went to become a headhunter and she headhunted me into British Airways. It was all, it was all great. And I found it, it was such a glamorous time to be in the airline industry. And I sort of worked my way up to work in brands, which was the kind of pinnacle of the airline, because it's where we had to make sure that every customer touch point was considered. And I was working for business class at the time. And we decided that you know, Virgin was sort of snapping at our heels. And we thought, look, what can we do to take us, you know, sort of over and above what Virgin can offer? And we did some research into how we could ensure that business customers arrived at their destination feeling refreshed. And we realised the key thing was sleep. And if they could get a good night's sleep, then, you know, it was a mission accomplished. So we decided the only way to do that was by creating flat beds because that's when you get proper sleep like deep REM sleep so where you get the rapid eye movement and so on so I, we had to work out how we could fit flat beds into a small cabin and the only way we could was by putting them head to toe which meant that some passengers would have to fly backwards and I had to go on an RAF jet where you get strapped into seats and you actually fly backwards to test out the whole concept and make sure that I didn't feel sick. Um, I was absolutely terrified. Actually, I was quite afraid of flying, which is ironic. And actually, it was fine. So, you know, we, we, we sort of landed and thumbs up and said, yeah, it's great. Let's do it. And it was as simple as that. And we so we had what we we'll call flying beds and it was quite revolutionary. And I think you know, when I look back, I think about the businesses that I've worked for. You know, Trail Finders was revolutionary at the time. It made backpacking quite a glamorous thing and it connected yes. flights around the world. So everybody was there booking flights. And then BA at that time, it was also quite revolutionary. And it was um, it was just such a fantastic brand because people really trusted it. And that's what I found incredible. You know, it's that halo that it had and how we had to make sure that every part of the customer's journey had to be considered so they didn't that halo wasn't tarnished in any way sadly that's you know 20 years on and that is no longer 
And I do feel quite sad when I sit on a BA flight and I think, oh, gosh, you know, it definitely oh, isn't I, what I, it was. I agree. I agree with you. I just, the missed opportunities there and, and what it used to be and what it is today. I've, I've read that you also said that it taught you about this idea of creating desirability. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we, you know, whatever our careers are potentially before starting our own businesses and what we pick up and how we can take those lessons um, on with us. And I, I totally agree with this idea that really marketing something and how you package it and how you make it desirable are such key lessons. What other lessons did you learn from that time? I think it was always put the customer first. Mm. You know, we would pour over research, we would look at questionnaires that they'd filled in and really think about what it was what our proposition to the customer was and how we could deliver it. And I found it fascinating because I had to spend my whole time going to different departments to persuade them of what they had to deliver. You know, simple things like the meal, you know, did it live up to expectations on a business class flight? What could we change? It was all a negotiation. So I was kind of at the centre of all these different touch points. And I think what I learned was that it has to be seamless, it has to be consistent and wherever you are in the world, you have to get what the airline has promised. Mm. And that's, you know, that's tough, but it's, it is about being managed really, really well and everyone being very clear on what their spec is. What do we have to deliver to ensure that this customer comes back to us and that they understand what the brand is all about? And I think the power of the brand was so apparent and our responsibility to deliver that that I became sort of mildly not mildly hugely obsessed with brands and I started looking at all the brands that I love and why do I love them how do they make me feel actually they make me feel great and they make me feel part of a community that I want to be part of Mm. so Mm. it's kind of it's the magic dust that I think allows businesses to have longevity Absolutely. Magic dust. I like that. You became a mum also while you were at BA. Yeah. (laughs) And when you had your second child that you decided to start a business of your own. Wanted to ask because, you know, many women over, you know, last 20 years, especially, you know, this is a catalyst um, to starting a business. Can I ask about that and having a child and whether that was the catalyst for change? Because, you know, raising a family, a young family, juggling a career, trying to merge those two. I've been talking a lot about this lately and how difficult actually not only society makes it, but also almost our preconceptions of who we are. Are we the working woman or are we the mum? And it's actually a, a lot deeper than I actually thought it was. So it's quite fascinating. What was that moment like for you? I think it really was the catalyst, actually, because I sort of thought I would pop out my daughter and then I would head back to BA and carry on sort of climbing the corporate ladder. And I'd had a really, you know, we did a really good job on the flying beds. So I thought, yeah, I'll come back. I'll get promoted. But I wanted to go part time and suddenly I wasn't that interesting to them. Mm. And I do remember in my interview, they were asking me to give to give them an example of multitasking. And I started talking about how I could change nappies and cook a meal at the same time. And, you know, the the look on their face was like, okay, that's really not interesting. Mm. And I thought, God. So I sort of walked away and they gave I, I did get a job, but it was it was so dull after what I'd done. And I thought, okay, if I am going to get a nanny and go to work, I need to do something that's worthwhile. Because we all know that once you've paid a nanny, you haven't really got much left over. So it's not for the money. It was just for me. So I decided and I went for interviews and I just the jobs I was I felt they just weren't worthy of leaving Anya, my daughter for. And so I actively started to think of a business idea. I thought I need to create a brand. I know how to do it. I've got the sort of the anatomy of a brand, I understand the structure, let's do this. So I started trying to think of different ideas. I did come up with what was a great idea, which was an online uh, dating agency, which was before, way before its time. And I sort of kind of sometimes think I should have done that, but I didn't have the tech expertise. And so I thought, right, let's do something that I can relate to, that I can understand. 
And then I just went to get, I made that trip from central London. I live in Kensington. I made that trip back to Ealing where I grew up to get my brows done. And as I was getting them threaded, I thought, oh my God, this is what I need to do. I need to bring threading to London. And I spoke to the owner of the salon that I was getting threaded in. And I said to her, her name is Nita. And I said, would you, do you want to partner with me? Should we do this? Should we take this to central London? But like, you know, make it really premium because people don't understand threading it's considered to be a a skill that's you know you know you you could pay two pounds to get your eyebrows threaded but let's really celebrate it because it is an amazing skill and she said do you know what one salon is enough for me I'm really happy to help you train you you can learn everything you know but no and I was just no thank you no thank you so I should have taken that warning sign then and there (laughs) (laughs) completely Firstly, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today listening to this podcast. And I know that your life is incredibly busy and you're juggling many things, let alone throwing in Christmas. Like so many, I seem to be designated Mrs. Christmas again in the household, organising festive cheer, the gifts, the food, the magic, but without the gold star or any of the praise that Father Christmas gets, of course, Well, first of all, I'm going to give you a gold star right now. A picture me pinning it onto your chest. Secondly, I'm positive you would love to enjoy Christmas shopping again. So I'm going to put the joy back into that as well. I've curated the best creative small businesses from across the UK, all under one roof. You'll find unique and thoughtful ideas for the pizza lovers, the kitchen discoers, the wild swimmers, the tricky teenagers, even the dad who has everything. Why are men so hard to buy for? I've curated the best in Christmas decorations, tablescapes and made the ultimate gift wrapping department. I've even taken care of the magic, those tiny touches that make your heart sing. In fact, you might well even find that you would like to be gifted yourself this Christmas because I bet it's not the first time you've been tasked with choosing your own gifts. So sit back, Mrs Christmas, and prepare to get excited. The home of small business at holly.co has all the brilliant ideas that you'll need. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. I think it's very easy for us to forget that you were actually disrupting an industry. So that light bulb moment, see, there you are. And I I think, firstly, I think it is funny, isn't it? When I hear these stories about entrepreneurs, it always comes back to what that founder saw as a not only just a gap in the market, but what they needed. They were the customer and they realised that something was missing. And, and it was very easy for you to say, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll just I'll I'll just bring this to London. But you were disrupting an industry. And although now browse obviously the big news, back in 2004, this service just didn't exist. No. I, I think about Ade Hussan, who founded Nubian Skin, and she was frustrated that she couldn't find underwear and tights in her nude skin tone. And they were all made for white women. You know, it's just those that moment, he's like, hang on a second, that's exactly what's required. Was it hard to get people to understand that concept in the beginning, being a woman talking about eyebrows? when eyebrows wasn't a thing and getting that business off the ground. And what did dad think? Dad thought it was, dad thought it was a great idea. I mean, that was dad. He was like, yeah, give it a go. Brilliant. You know, we understood threading, but when I spoke to my friends, some of them got it and some just thought, really? Eyebrows? And what really got to them was doing eyebrows in public because I said I want to do it like a bar I want it to be express and sort of an express service that's fast because that's what happens in India every street corner you've got a little salon you can pop into it there's no chit chat there's no booking in you sit in a chair you get your brows done because it's a necessity you leave and you look fabulous and you feel fabulous and that's what I wanted to recreate can I just ask in India so there's no room you just literally sit it's quite public oh yeah Totally public. So you were bringing that over to London because if you think about it, 
Um, the last thing, potentially, if, if you'd asked me, the last thing I would want to do, I don't even want anyone to know that I've got bushy eyebrows, that I even pluck them. It, you know, that's a, a secret thing. Whereas just having that bravery to say, actually, I'm just going to... because. It's not just even the service you're offering there, isn't it? You're helping women be more confident to potentially own what they've got to do to look a certain way. Yeah, women just, they just didn't know. British women did not know the power of the brow at that time. And the beauty of having it out in public was they saw the results and it became that whole kind of you know, crispy creme donuts, you know, that the cues forming because they could see that women, not only that they look great, but the look on their face when they looked in the mirror was just, wow. Mm. Like I said, I didn't know I had these cheekbones. I can see my eyes. And it was really rewarding just looking at their faces because they felt a million dollars when they left. And I would meet friends and I still meet friends and school teachers in the playground and they'll all look at me and say what do you think of my brows don't look at my brows do I need to get my brows done (laughs) and I think that's great because at least they're talking about them they're not ignoring them for me that's the worst thing don't ignore them because you know when they just sit there they just hang there you know like a pair of curtains it's just like right you need to do something with them so that first, so you, you said dad, dad's like an optimistic yeah. gentleman, he sounds like, and he's like, you go for it, you go for it. So what did you do? And Did you open just one place to start with? And where was that? I mean, I know where it was, but I want you to tell me because it's quite a good first place. Well, I knew that I wanted to have it in a premium place because I thought if I'm taking a skill that's been sort of, the problem was the only place you could find threading were in not very salubrious places, you know, in Southall, there'd be little salons and the hygiene wasn't brilliant. So I thought, right, let's really take this upmarket. Let's make it a kind of lifestyle offering. And then we can charge the right price for it too. And so I, I put a sort of, you know, sort of business plan together. And uh, yeah, it was, I sort of cobbled something together. And I, you know, I took a quote from India Knight because she had written in her shopping manual that threading was the best thing. So I took that and I put that in the front. And then, you know, I sort of tried to explain to the people I was selling the concept to about how women were changing, that they were living faster lives. They were shopping on Etaporte, they were eating sushi at bars, they were getting their nails done. So, hey, what about brows? And um, I've really wanted it to be in Selfridges. That was the place. That was, you know, for me, the kind of, that was the temple of retail. Yes. And the buyers were the gods. And so I sort of hovered around the head office in Selfridges for a long time. I delivered my proposal. I didn't hear back. I would hang around. I made best friends with the lady at reception. She got fed up with me. And then finally I got the call uh, and they said, listen, nice idea. Like the theatrical side to it we don't have space. So if we get space one day, we'll come back to you. Uh, So I thought, okay, I could either wait or I could move on. I then tried Harvey Nichols and I thought that then was the fashion mecca. You know, Mary Portas was, you know, she was doing some amazing things, creating wonderful windows and doing fashion shows up on the fifth floor. And, you know, people at that time were going to department stores because that was a great place to hang out, you know, the juice bars and great places to eat. And so I thought, okay, this would be the right place. And again, I kept phoning, I kept phoning. And then finally the buyer, she was so fed up with me calling. She just said, look, we don't have a big Indian demographic in at Harvey Nichols. So we just don't think this will work. And I said, look, look, it's not just for Indian women. It's for any women. I I think you, you know, you may perhaps you need to try it. And she just said, no, we, we don't have the space. That seems to be the kind of standard answer. We don't have the space. And then I found out my sister who was working in Soho, she used to work for Jaeger and she knew what's what. And I called her up and I said, look, I I don't know where to go to next. I can't, I can't take a lease out on a shop and I don't really want to. That wasn't, that wasn't the idea behind this concept. So she went and had a a chat with all her, with her team, many girls. And they all came back and said, what about Fenwick? Fenwick and Bond Street. I was thinking, Fenwick, I just don't know it that well. It feels hidden away and wasn't really what I'd imagined. But they all said, Vogue is round the corner. Yes. If Vogue is round the corner and you get this put into Vogue, you'll fly. I thought, okay, I'll give it a go. So I dropped the proposal in and it's 
kind of when you least expect it that you get that call. And I got the call from the buyer and she just said, Venetra, I love what you've sent in. You know, Vishali is threading eyebrow. She's the queen of eyebrow threading in Marylebone. And a lot of the Vogue girls go there. Very expensive, long waiting list to see her. I think this is going to fly. Come and see me. So I, thought, oh. so I went in to see her and she said, look, your lovely drawing that you've done of a brow bar with all your therapists kitted out, beautiful uniforms, uh, lovely screens, all well and good. But I haven't got the space for that. We will give you space for one chair. It's going to be in the middle of the lingerie department and give it a go. And I said, okay, how much do I charge? I was thinking eight pounds. And she just threw her head back and laughed. Eight pounds. No one will sit in the chair if you charge eight pounds. Fifteen. I said, what? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah. It's got to feel like a coveted thing. I like, okay, fine. So they did give me the chair and... It was incredible. It was the most exciting moment of my life. The first person I phoned up was my father. And I said, I've got space. I've got space in Fenwick. And he just said, brilliant. You will never look back. And that's what we did. So, you know, the challenges of finding a nice chair, challenges of finding therapists that were prepared to come into London to then train them and make sure they knew how to communicate with a customer, a premium customer. It was all very difficult, but... It caught on so quickly and all the journalists came. They all sat in the chair and they all wrote about it. You know, we were in Vogue, we were in the Telegraph, we were in the Sunday Times. And, you know, they were saying this is really disruptive. This is really exciting. And, you know, I remember one journalist saying, you know, what's next? Bikini lines by the deli counter. I mean, crazy, (laughs) but great. And I, you know, it was brilliant. And I, it's funny because in the back of my head... I wasn't surprised because I know that threading is amazing. I know it transforms your face. It's the best way to take care of your brows. So I was just so pleased that I was introducing it to all these women. I love that story. That's literally the way to the way that the founder believes in something and can absolutely convince others to I don't know, take that leap of faith. And thank goodness for that woman, because I mean, we'll talk about the rest because everyone starts coming back to you. Tell me though, when you started and you've got that chair and you're in the underwear department and you've got a queue and all these sorts of things, you've also got two young children. Mm. And the juggle is very real. I know when I started not on the high street, those listening to this podcast, they know how he was three months old. And it's absolutely brutal trying to run a company with a young family. How did you navigate that juggle? How did you deal with guilt? What was your, what did you hold on to in those times? Well, it's so funny because I look back and I just remember that I was going slightly insane being at home with the children. It just wasn't for me. And I had to get back to work for my sanity. So I remember feeling happier But I think the thing about having your own business is that you, you know, I could take the kids, I often took the kids with me and my husband was great. I think having support at home is really important. He didn't think I was mad. He didn't think that eyebrows was a crazy idea. He just kind of went with it. But um, it was funny because we didn't have mobile phones then. I, I think the BlackBerry came just a bit later and actually was amazing. But so when I was with the kids, I was I was with them. But then I did have to leave because once the chair launched in Fenwick, I had to be there every day. And I did feel really guilty, but I don't know, I felt so excited that it didn't matter. I was just living my dream, you know, and I thought this is going to work for me because once it's settled... I can choose my hours. I can turn up and pick up the kids from school if I want to. And I don't care, I'll work late at night. That doesn't bother me. It just meant I had the freedom. I just had freedom and I was doing something that I loved and it allowed me to be as creative as I wanted to be. And I found that really exciting. But it was hard. You know, there was no sleep, no time for myself. I just remember, oh, I just remember my skin breaking out, thinking I must go to the gym, not eating properly, But I think that adrenaline just somehow got me through and my husband was was really supportive. I think when you start bringing in a team, it's wonderful because it gives you a bit of, you can work from home, you know. And then we finally got a BlackBerry and I was able to call the girls every day and say, how's it all going? Are there any problems? I think if you just don't think, I just didn't think about anything. I just did it. (laughs) 
think sometimes that's the way to do it. It is the best way to do it. And also just that understanding that actually, if you are going to start a business, you are starting that business in a way that you're investing now for later reward. And that later reward can be that you're going to be spending more time with your children than if you'd got a nine to, you know, I say nine to five, what is really nine to five, but nine to eight in the city, trying to get back for them, all these sorts of things. And I think sometimes we forget that. What's the alternative? The alternative would be, you know, far less flexibility um, and actually we're building this up now so that later on we can have those choices that so many people don't have. I'd love to go back to your the journey that you were on. I read that it was a deliberate strategy that you had not to advertise in the traditional way. Why was that? Was that because you didn't have the marketing budget to start with so actually mm. or was it that you didn't believe in in how to recruit that customer through traditional methods at the time? Yeah, I just wanted to be really targeted. I knew who my demographic was and I saw her. When I was going to research for putting this concept in place, I remember walking to Selfridges, looking around, looking at the Mac counter, thinking, I love it, a disruptive makeup brand. That's where I'm going to be. And then I looked at all the people and I thought, those are the women that are going to come and those are the women that are going to get their brows done. And I and I knew that the best way to talk to them was through referrals and through the kind of magazines they read then. And Vogue was the holy grail. There were certain publications you wanted to be in. It wasn't as complicated as now. It was just, if I can get the top 10 journalists to come in, try it and talk about it, I will create that ripple effect. And it really worked. It was simpler then. And I didn't even need a PR agency. I did it. I would, I created lovely invitations. I sent them out by hand. I wrote a note to them. I invited them all in and they all came and gave it a go. And it was, it was frightening. I remember when Susanna Taylor from Vogue, she was one of the first in the chair and we got some eyebrow eyelash tint in her eye. And I was Honestly, I thought this is the end. This is the end. I'm going to get a bad write-up. This is my brand is just going to, you know, really suffer the consequences of this. And, you know, the therapist managed to flush the dye out of her eye pretty quickly. And she looked up. She seemed happy. And then we were on the beauty page. And even today, I said, Susanna, do you remember that moment? And she went, No, I just remember I had great eyelashes. And I just thought, God, you know, like my heart was in my mouth at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was so much simpler, wasn't it? Word of mouth, the strength of a recommendation versus anything else. I'd even say still today with Instagram advertising, meta advertising, all, all those sorts of things. Word of mouth has to be the holy grail. You know, I think they're really good building blocks for a brand because those customers they stay with you for life because their friends have told them it's great. They become part of a community and, you know, they trust you. So they keep coming back. I think the problem is as brands grow and the competition grows, you're then fighting for that space. And sometimes it's not powerful enough. And as we open more and more brow bars, you do think about the advertising and it's a struggle because whenever we try, it fails. It just doesn't work for our brand. It's just about its community and perhaps things like collaborations work better with other brands. So storytelling, emails. I've just found advertising, digital advertising is, you know, we just can't seem to get that right. That's difficult. It costs a lot, a lot of money. And also we're service, we're really a service brand. And so, you know, we've tried things like treat well to pull customers in, but Ultimately, it is who your mm. friends tell you to go. And because brows are so visible, people will look at them and say, your brows look good. Where, where did you get them done? But, you know, it is challenging yes. because now everyone's doing threading. I mean, when you could get it, at, you know, at the tube station, you know, brow bars have been set up. I was just mortified and really upset because I just thought they're taking something that I was trying to elevate. And then they've just taken it and put it in a tube station, which is not what I wanted for the threading concept at all. But you have to accept that 
everybody will always try and copy a good idea. Well, I was going to ask you about competition because whilst the brand was growing, you went from one chair in Fenix to two chairs in Harvey Nichols and then yeah. three in Selfridges until you had 100 yeah. chairs and 20 brow bars across the UK and globally. You introduced your brilliant range of products, which I'm a big fan, by the way, and can be bought straight from your site. So competition started because of your success. How have you felt about competition and how have you navigated it? A lot of people listening would have started up their own companies. They might have what they would call copycats. What's your view on competition? Well, it's changed. I would say that I was I was devastated because somebody that worked for me, in fact, when we were talking about children, I finally found somebody that could run the brow bar in Fennec because I was struggling and I did feel very guilty. And I thought if I get somebody to just man the brow bar, then I can spend more time at home. So I did find somebody and she ended up taking the concept and opening it up in House of Fraser in Oxford Street. She didn't tell me that. She, she left and then she set up a business. And I felt it was great betrayal because I thought... She pretended to be my best friend. I told her everything I knew. And she also tried to take some of the, my therapists with her to the brow bar. And I, I was, I don't know, it was, I, I think I was felt really crushed actually, because it was the first sign of disloyalty. And I thought we were a really happy family and so on. But business is business. And I remember the buyer at Fenwick said to me, she was so relaxed. And she just said, it's the best form of flattery, Vanita. And it will keep mm. you on your toes. And at that time, I just thought, oh, but, you know, she's right. And it just means that we have to be bigger and better. And everything that I've considered to be important about a brand, I think it stood the test of time. And sometimes I wonder, I think, God, I pour so much money into making everything as perfect as it can be. And yet people will go and sit in a foyer of a tube station and get their brows on what is the point why don't I just keep it cheap and cheerful we could be a lot more profitable but you know I think it was right that I did that and I think now that we are seen as the market leaders and you know our customer base just keeps swelling I'm not sure that we'd still be around if I hadn't done that Absolutely. I mean, I remember when discovering your range online and it was because I hadn't, I didn't know enough, but I knew that you were market leaders. And then it's incredible because I knew that you were market leaders and I've always, I need to come and get my brows done with you guys. But that is now my sort of sign of sort of like the most perfect afternoon to come to you because this is the transformation that I'm going to get. When I see the, the, the sort of copycats at the tube station, I don't even liken it to the same industry. You know, it's and again, that is the power of brand. That is what you put in the premium service, the experts, the original, all of these sorts of things. But it takes money, doesn't it? It takes time. It takes loyalty. And sometimes you can't see the fruits of your labour initially. Mm. But I, I just only have to look at not in the high street. You know, I think about it as a seed that we plant with all the correct values of a brand. And then as it grows, it can with the storms. Yeah, I think that's what's so important. And it's a labour of love. But the truth is that I can offer anything less. I wanted to offer a lifestyle brand and something that I felt proud of that's beautiful. So it has to be somewhere that I would go. Otherwise, it's not it wouldn't have been interesting to me. So I don't, I don't think that I am a brilliant businesswoman, actually, I think I'm more a better brand builder. Because sometimes I think, yeah, you know, I could have cut costs, I could have made money. And perhaps if I had more of a male brain, I might have done that and be a lot richer. But instead, I just keep pouring it back in to the business. Yeah, because I just want it to be, you know, we spend so much money on the interiors of our of our shops. The truth is that if I put a chair into the corner of a department store, versus a beautiful shop, that corner will still be as busy as my shop because people just want to get amazing brows. So sometimes I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a vanity project, but you know what? I just, 
I can't I can't offer any less. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think it's a smart move, actually. <laughs> I'm very glad that you have the brain that you uh, absolutely do. I think you're now a market leader. And, and also, you have all the possibilities. Who you, You've got your own range of products, uh, brow pencils to, um, you know, all the things that I bought from you. And, and it is, you're the only place now I go for my brows, for all my makeup. So I'll get my makeup from other places, but this is where I go for my brows. That makes me so happy. <laughs> so happy because it's a competitive market. Well, that's what you've built up. But I don't even know if it's a competitive, well, I know it's a competitive market as in the pencils can be bought somewhere else. But that mm. is what I would say is why those interiors matter because the interiors have rubbed off for me buying online with you, even though I've not visited one of your brow bars, always wanted to, always absolutely on the list. But do you see, and I think that that is where absolutely brand wins every time. It just takes time to seep through to all of us. And I think talking about stormy times, I wanted to ask you about COVID because that, what an impact that must have had. Um, it hit the beauty industry, obviously, incredibly. What did you do and what did you learn through that period? Um. Gosh, it, it was an exceptionally hard period, actually. I think it was just not knowing. And I know that many, many businesses were in this position. We weren't really set up very well for online trade, which obviously changed uh, because it had to. Team furloughed, 200 therapists. Um, so it was really tricky. But strangely, it made me think very hard about the business and what what the essential parts of it was and what the bits were that we could let go of. So we did, in my mind, I did a lot of spring cleaning. You know, we had a huge head office. We didn't need it. That could go. We did need to improve our online offering. So I got to work on that. And we had a lot of brow bars. We didn't need to have as many. So I, I started planning out the ones that we should close down. And also the behaviour was changing of women and I could see that. I thought when they come back and when the brow bars open, a lot of them will be working from home. A lot of them will want a local offering. And I think they're going to want, um, before the brow bars were set up to really help women that were working, that were busy, they're in the middle of shopping, it was quick. Now I thought women will be wanting to look for a place of respite where they could relax, where maybe that we could offer some more sort of head or brow massages. They could take time out, introduce more of the wellness aspect. So we decided we wouldn't move into any more department stores. And what we would do is take our brand further and create these wonderful havens where you feel like you've walked into this beautiful place in India, but it's contemporary. It's definitely in London and they want to dwell there. And they want to have a chai latte mm -hmm. and get their brows massaged. So that's what we've done. So we have, we've been opening up what we call brow boutiques and just trying to really make the experience as special as possible. But, you know, we did survive. And I think it was really funny during the time because radio stations, newspapers, they were all calling me for an expert opinion on, you know, how businesses would survive, but more importantly, how would brows survive? And so, you know, there I was telling people, right, we're at home, this is what you need to do, you know, get some castor oil, moisturize your brows. I ordered loads of tweezers in and sold them online. They sold like hotcakes, showing people how to use them, you know, and people were desperate because they had got used to having a service that took care of brows. I was desperate. I mean, my brows were terrible. So, but what was lovely was that all the journalists, influencers and so on were looking to me for advice. So I was very busy on IGTV and doing all sorts of things. And so we got through it. And I think we did weather the storm because, and a lot of competition was wiped out during that time, which, you know, I just thought, okay, so it was worthwhile investing. I'm pleased that we did. Yeah, you please you weathered the storm, which others can't with yeah. the lack of focus on brand. I just want to go back because you were actually in 2015 awarded an MBE in recognition that Blink was about much more than eyebrow shaping. The honour also recognised that the women that Blink employs were from ethnic backgrounds and that the brand gives back through various charities, both in the UK and India. Was that a proud moment? And I, I'm wondering, did you take your dad? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, yeah, an exceptionally proud moment. And the funny thing is that because I am very disorganized, my mail had piled up in the office. I mean, it was literally, you know, mountain high 
pile of letters just I've got a similar pile right next to me now and um I got a, a call from I don't know who calls you who are they who are the people that call you in government anyway they call me and they said we've sent you a letter you haven't replied are you interested we need an answer by the end of the week and I said a letter for what and she said you've been awarded a, an MBE and you know when you just think okay someone's having a laugh here and I said <laughs> what what? What do you mean? And I said, are you sure? Is this serious? And she, anyway, she also laughed and she said, it's absolutely serious. Go and look through that pile of mail. So I did. And it was right at the bottom and it was a letter awarding me an MBE and it had been sitting there for a couple of weeks. So, and of course I phoned, I phoned my dad <laughs> and uh, my mother's always with my dad. So actually I phoned my parents. Um, reception was bad. They were shopping in John Lewis, uh, checking out the brow bar there. And, but I got the message across and yeah, I think it was probably my father's definitely my father's proudest moment more than mine actually for him it was wonderful but I think also it's so funny when you run a business because you never really see it from anyone's perspective but your own you know that customers like it and they're using it but the fact that it's been recognized for something I just thought wow I'm not just talking to myself there are people that are looking at a brand I've created and you know you see your customers queuing up and that's great but this was something else this was that I had contributed to beauty services in Britain it was much bigger it was a fabulous moment I can imagine I can imagine how proud your dad was from that moment that you had what 19 well no it wouldn't be 19 years but you know you'd been doing this for a very long time and there his optimism it paid off he believed in you well my dad actually said from you know when he was cycling in the Punjab as a you know 18 year old he never imagined one day he'd be going to Buckingham Palace and watching his daughter shaking hands with Prince William and for him you know, it was a really proud moment. I know there's lots of controversy about MBE and, you know, some people say, well, should you accept it? Because, um, you know, the whole empire issue. But do you know what? My father thought it was the best thing ever. So for him, I'm really, I'm very proud to have it. I can imagine. Each week, I'm joined by our wonderful partners at Dell Technologies. They're passionate supporters of small businesses right across the UK through free resources and networks like Dwen, Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, championing female founders and helping them thrive. Dwen is a community of brilliant women that covers far more than just tech. In fact, alongside webinars and forums, you have access to mentors, investors and advisors from across the world. Most recently, Dell Technologies commissioned the only global gender-specific study on how cities support women-owned businesses, transforming insights into action with policymakers and investors in Dwen's global impact on women in business. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Did you ever dream that 19 years after you started Blink would be the global brand it is today? But not only did you ever think about that, what's been the main thing that you know now that you didn't then? I think I always knew that it was going to be a global success. I'm not sure I'd have invested so much or put my heart and soul into something that I didn't see, uh, you know, becoming a global brand. So that was always the intention I didn't waver at all. I just knew women would love it. I still believe there's so much opportunity. I I think I didn't realise it would take so long. I didn't, you know, you always expect challenges, but it is a long, long journey. And, you know, you were saying that you invest so that you can have your freedom. I think you work harder, but you can choose the hours you work. So I guess I've just got used to how hard it is but at the same time it's really rewarding so I think if someone said to me 20 years ago you're going to be doing this in 20 years and it's still going to be really really hard and there's always going to be new challenges so don't think that you know you can take your foot off the pedal would I still be doing it I think the answer is probably yes, but it's quite a journey. But that's naivety, isn't it? Yeah. That's the beauty of naivety. Someone today said to me, um, someone that's close to me said, you know what? Potentially you've still got naivety in you, Holly. 
And isn't that amazing that you've been able to hold on to it? And isn't it funny that we never talk about naivety in a positive way? We always talk about it negatively. And actually, is naivety the fact that you've just said after 19 years, there's still so much opportunity and, you know, what is that? And you're like, well, I don't necessarily, I do know, but I also don't know, you know, it's going to be whatever I magic up and move forward. And actually, that is the optimism that your dad talks about. You know, that is that flame. And it is, you probably wouldn't have it any other way. We don't quite recognise the, the luckiness of ourselves going on this journey. It's hard, but that naivety keeps us alive. It, it allows us to make a dream. You know that if you dream something, you'll make it true. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, I would get bored if I didn't have a challenge. So, you know, now I'm thinking, great, let's get the products out into global markets and how do I navigate this and who do I need to talk to? And if I don't have that, you know, I think the moment I get bored, that's a dangerous place to be. So I kind of, I create things to do. So I think half the time I, I'm responsible for putting those challenges in my way. <laughs> because really, what I should probably do is put my feet up and say, okay, I've got 15 brow bars in the UK. It's fantastic. Enjoy it. Enjoy. I, I, I can't. No, yeah. no. That's the, that's the entrepreneur's <laughs> no. curse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. God forbid that we we pat ourselves on the back and just think, okay, it's time to, you know, relax. I just can't. I can't. I'm all, my brain is always ticking. Always ticking. No, no, no such thing. No such thing as no. retiring. No. And also, I just think whenever I'm doing anything, if I'm traveling, I always feel inspired by things and I always want to feed that back into my business and my brand. And I just think if I didn't have something to feed it back into, I don't know what I would do with it. You'd feed it back into your husband and your kids and they go stir crazy. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. My husband's always said, please don't ever sell your business. <laughs> Because I just, you drive me bonkers. <laughs> so. I've enjoyed, Benita, this conversation so much. I think that actually loads of people are going to really take stock of how you've given us that insight into building your business and where things can start, that basic idea, what can come to you, that actually something that was part of your life and you've built a brand out of it. I would like to ask you two questions at the end of this podcast and I ask all my guests. Can you tell me what if this journey has been a roller coaster and you are sitting there with your perfect eyebrows? What would you say has been your lowest low? I think my lowest low was it was probably the pandemic. I think it really floored me. It was an unfortunate time because I lost my father and we've spoken a lot about that, but he died just before lockdown and it all happened at the same time so he actually got COVID and he died just before we went into lockdown so it was such a blur for me and it was a very lonely time you know my team were all furloughed we were all living in isolation we were grieving and I think just trying to it took a long time to just get that purpose back and I think in hindsight, you realise, you know, I realised that my father had given me so much of that purpose and that I wanted to make him very proud. And so I sort of had to hold on to that and keep me going. And, you know, and then we kept getting delays with opening the brow bars back up. So retail was allowed to open up and we weren't because we were considered close contact. And so it was something like 18 months of not knowing if the business would survive my father hadn't survived. And yeah, it was just really difficult. And I think had life been normal in the sense that we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and I could have gone to work and distracted myself and have that purpose, it would have been easier. But I think it was emotionally very difficult because I thought I might lose everything. I'm so sorry. And I'm so sorry for your loss as well. I can see my father's very close to me in my business journey and has been for the last 20 years. And so there is something incredibly special if your father's part of your sort of mentorship team and your sort of hidden cheerleader that keeps you going. And I can only imagine during COVID as well. I just how how distressing and I'm I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. And I, I think, you know, I've always thought that all the difficult times in a business you can negotiate your way out of. And there's always there's always a way around, isn't there? And I, and I think that's what I struggle with. There was no negotiation to be had with anything that was going on during the pandemic. Uh, it was just taken out of our hands. Conversely, can you tell me about your high? 
I think my high, other than going to the palace with my father, I think my high was probably when we opened up in New York. It felt so glamorous. And I just thought, wow, you know, as I walked down, you know, Fifth Avenue into Saks, we had a big press event, all these great journalists waltzing in. I did a photo shoot for a great magazine called More Magazine. And I just, I thought, this is it. This you is know. it. I've arrived. Blink has arrived. And they loved it. And I, it was just like something out of the movies for me. And yeah, I just felt so incredibly proud. Wow. It feels like a scene out of Sex in the City, doesn't it? Yeah, it did feel like that. I had my Manola Blahniks on, actually. My goodness me. Yeah. Who you carry? <laughs> now, I'm going to ask you if you would read a letter to your younger self because this is the moment in the podcast where I'd love to know what you would say and I don't know what you're going to share with us but this has been Vanita a lovely conversation and I'm looking forward to coming to meet you potentially and you could maybe show me what to do with these these brows. Oh it would be an absolute pleasure definitely. So I hand over to you. Thanks Holly. Letter to my younger self. Dear young Vanita, life will unfold so many unexpected surprises, but perhaps not as surprising as you think they are. You are a dreamer. There is something beyond the mundanity of everyday life. The grey skies of London will make you feel hemmed in and you will always be searching for the sun. Your spirit will be in India and your heritage will become your armour. Relish those moments as a child behind closed doors where you can enjoy time with your family, eating your mother's lamb curry, watching Bollywood movies and listening to your father's stories of coming to Britain in the 1950s. Don't be embarrassed that your house smells of warm dal cooking on the stove and Lata Mageshka records playing in the background. You will love the idiosyncrasies of London, cutting edge fashion, music, friends and an anything goes attitude. But you will feel anchored in India. And at some point, the two will merge. It's okay to be a blend. Don't waste too much time wishing as a teenager that you're too dark in complexion or that you're too skinny or that you've got too much frizzy hair. You don't need to fit the mold. Keratin treatments will sort out the hair. And trust me, that mono brow at 13 will become your biggest asset. Make the most of time at school. Your friends there will be with you for life. They understand the suburban culture, wanting to break out of it, but also relishing the comfort of it. They are also clever, and you too should focus on your education, less gossiping at the back of the classroom. But don't worry about not being too good at some subjects. Maths will be a perennial challenge, but you'll manage without it, and you'll do a deeper dive into the subjects you love, history and English. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do anything. And don't let your shyness hold you back. Shyness is so overrated. You think that you might go into journalism or acting. You're not sure you're good enough. Get yourself to those drama auditions at university and don't be put off by louder, more confident people. You always know in your heart that you'll do something creative, but you don't know what your thing is. Try different experiences. They'll equip you well for your career and take you down an unexpected path. Your father had no plans for a career and similarly has no expectations of you, except perhaps to marry a nice Indian boy. Without any pressure, you're free to explore. You'll take a backpack after university to aimlessly travel the world and then return and see where the wind takes you. You'll be brave and you'll go for many interviews and then you'll cry when you don't get them. But it turns out okay. You want to be saved by the right job. You don't quite fit. Being different makes you more interesting, though. And you'll feel stifled when you do conform, so don't. Break those rules if they don't make sense. When you don't get the promotion you want, you'll come up with a better idea, a left-of-centre idea. People will tell you it's crazy and that it won't work. But you know it's not. What is crazier are British women's brows. They'll need drastic help, but they just don't know it yet. Hold strong in your belief that by understanding women, you will change the landscape of beauty forever. It might be wise to pause at the concept of an earlier idea, the online Indian dating agency, Bombay Mix. Hinge gets there later. It would certainly have made you rich faster. So perhaps don't dismiss it too quickly. As a Piscean, you're a bit of a slippery fish and people struggle to pin you down, but you may want to bring planning into the process earlier. You'll hate planning, but people can help you. You'll always feel the pull of wanting to disappear from responsibility in life to somewhere spiritual, but you have a job to do at home. You always imagine that you are going to have three children. 
as you had two wonderful sisters. You will be lucky enough to meet the love of your life, the nice Indian boy, in your early 20s and have the family you always imagined. You'll keep your maiden name. That's important because it identifies who you are and becomes more poignant when you lose your father. There will be hard, exhausting moments ahead when juggling the dream and you will wonder how you got through it. Never wish the moments away. Those birthday parties whilst on the phones, trying to ensure that you have staff at your brow bars, being late at the school gates and missing parents' evenings are all part of a fine juggling act. You won't want to be without either. So laugh at those moments and you'll get through them. The children grow up fast and how you wish you could go back and savour some of those drops of them as children again. But your children will never wish that you hadn't built your business. Try to be a bit tougher, not take everyone's troubles on and feel responsibility of making everyone happy. Sometimes business is not for you. You'll feel every knock, lack of loyalty and be overly emotional when making decisions. Step back a little. You also need to prepare a little more, do the deep dive and delve into the detail. You can't wing it all your life. But laughter is the best dose of life and you'll do lots of that with your family, with your team and with your friends. Do as your father did. Collect people on your way and hold on to them because they mark every chapter of your life. Your life will be a fine blend of that humour, friends, gin and tonics and lovely frocks. You'll never be bored. You'll relish building something that brings together an all-female workforce, surfacing a myriad of well-groomed customers. You'll feel incredibly proud and it'll make you wonder why you doubted yourself. There will of course be sad moments that floor you, but through these moments you will grow. Finally, don't sweat the small stuff. You will tick the many boxes of life, seemingly by accident. But perhaps there's a semi-conscious plan after all. And a final plea, younger self, please write a diary to remember all those moments. They'll get hazier as you get older and you'll want to share the details of your story. Gosh, how lovely. Vanita, I loved every single moment of that. I felt like I was next to you during your entire, well, I don't know, your blossoming. And this is a prime example of how an idea can transform someone's life, I think, for the better. And I'm so happy that this has happened to you. And I'm so excited to what will happen. And it's um, just been an honour to talk to you, Vanita. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thanks so much, Holly. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. If you've enjoyed this episode, can I ask that you share it with a friend and like, subscribe and review it too, so that together we can inspire even more people to follow their dreams, to build a life they love. Mm -hmm.